immersive audio podcast. In conversations with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. This episode is sponsored by Innovate Audio. Innovate Audio offers a range of software-based spatial audio processing tools. Their latest product, PanLab Console, is a Mac OS application that adds 3D spatial audio rendering capabilities to live audio mixing consoles, including popular models from Yamaha, Midas, and Behringer. This means you can achieve an object-based audio workflow utilizing the hardware you already own. Use the code immersive to zero for 20% discount on all PanLab licenses. To find out more, visit innovateaudio.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast, episode 89, with me, your host, Monica Bowles. Oliver is unfortunately not going to be able to join us today, but I am looking forward to welcoming our guests, John Henry Dale and Marin Royards. John Henry Dale is an immersive media artist, musician, and entrepreneur focused on live spatial audio and video performance based between Miami and New York. He holds a Master of Science in Digital Composition and Performance from the University of Edinburgh and composes, performs, and produces music across a range of genres from electronica, jazz, funk, Latin, global bass, and ambient to avant-garde and serialist composition projects. He has also worked extensively in the confluence of IT, web, AV, live streaming, and immersive media technology at the Regional Art and Culture Council New World Symphony, Hive Streaming, and LinkedIn. Most recently, in July of 2023, he worked with Marin Royards at the Sonic Sphere Project to help create custom spatial audio mixes in SPAT, Reaper, and Ableton Live of selected works for the Sonic Sphere residency at The Shed, and also created a personalized spatial audio mix and listening session for Mike Bloomberg and Marina Abramovic. John Henry performed his own live music for his Inveridi Lux spatial audio performance project inside the Sonic Sphere as part of a 2023 Miami Individual Artist Grant funded by the National Endowment for the Arts and the Miami-Dade Cultural Affairs Department. Marin Royards is a sound architect, researcher, and performer guided by convoluted movements through music, art, and spatial studies. The interaction between space and sound in cities with a history slash present of conflict has been a recurring theme in his multimedia works to date. His 2020 awarded doctoral thesis explores the state-altering effect of sound, space, and movement from the Russian avant-garde to today's clubs and raves. He is one part of a critical essay film practice with artist-researcher Henrietta Williams and teaches sound design for film and installation art at the Bartlett School of Architecture. Hello, and welcome so much to the podcast um, today. We're really excited to have you. I know we just kind of went extensively through your backgrounds and your bios, but would uh, you both kind of please tell us a little bit about your background um, from your point of view and then how you got into spatial audio? 
I think my journey has been been indeed quite confluent, as my biography says. Um, I actually started um, at a conservatoire um, and I trained as a drummer, um, which was something that happened. I always imagined I was going to go to art school because that's what I used to do as a kid, draw um, endlessly. Um, but my father, he was a sort of he was a doctor by day and a drummer by night. He died when I was eighteen, and he left me his drum kit. Um, and actually, I started my foundation year at art school, but wasn't really happy um, and, and thought about um, what else I could do. Um, uh, and because that drum kit was left to me, I decided to just um, uh, teach myself how to play drums. So I spent two years woodshedding, uh, like eight hours a day, uh, and then got myself into a conservatoire, which I did. Um, but then just before um, I was in my final year and I got really disillusioned with the sort of very traditional um, um, mentality that is still um, to to today is still sort of very much um, part and parcel of of conservatoires. Um, so I switched back to fine art and then did uh, time based media, so BFA, um, where I did a lot of sound installation. Always, or a lot of that was actually using my drum kit and my degree show work um, was taken the acoustics, sort of the outside acoustics of um, a building complex in Paris, uh, which is the new National Library. And the acoustics there is a horrible building, but because it's all glass, steel uh, and wood, there's some incredible acoustics, like lots of flutter echoes and, and, and very long reverbs um, and very interesting echoes. And I sort of did impulse recordings of that site and then uh, recreated that or allowed visitors to recreate that site to their own liking by using an electronic drum kit. So it has a spatial audio, I think a 24 speaker sort of um, in a cluster in, in a gallery space. And then people could play a drum kit and they could play the acoustics of their building, sort of recreating that building to their own liking. Um, so I think that was my first foray into spatial audio. And then I actually did a master's in urban design, which was very much looking at how you can change um, um, architecture on an urban scale um, to change the acoustics, not to get rid of noise, but to do creative um, um, interventions, right? To um, see what would happen if, if the sounds of one street corner are being piped to another street corner. Um, so it was very much a creative uh, thinking through what, what might be possible. And then after that, I did my PhD, um, which was very much about how sound, light, and movement come together in, in club spaces. And I found these incredible um, inventions um, they did in 1920s Russia, just, just after the revolution, before things went, um, went horribly wrong. Um, and it struck me that unwittingly a lot of that actually happened in, in rave culture. Um, so I took a lot of those technologies, those really quite old technologies, and um, re-imagine um, uh, them um, on, on the dance floor. So a lot of sound to light, um, early synthesizer um, uh, inventions. I sort of tried to reimagine those um, as synergy machines for a dance floor. So there was one, um, it's actually the last installation I did, um, where there were lots of photoelectric cells above a dance floor and people could use glow sticks to sort of um, uh, modulate what was happening from the DJ booth or from the live performance. So you would get this sort of synergy of what was happening on the dance floor, would change what um, um, what was happening from, from the stage. Uh, and then all of that uh, energy was also what drove the lighting system. So that's a sort of very uh, integral um, uh, system, um, synergy system between light, sound and movement. Um, so yeah, um, and then what's not in my biography is, of course, then I met through Henrietta Williams, my my collaborator um, on, on um, sound design for film, she's a filmmaker, uh, and an old school friend of hers was Ed Cook, and Ed Cook had this obsession 
with something that happened in the 1970s, um, which was Stockhausen, Karl Heinz Stockhausen's Google Auditorium, which was a spherical concert hall with spatial audio and lights. Um, and he really wanted to recreate that. Um, and I met him through my friend Henrietta Williams, and we started building these really small DIY, uh, two and a half meter, I think the first one was, um, spherical um, uh, sound systems. Um, in, initially, we didn't have any lights. Um, and he we went through, he had this idea of, of rapid iteration. So every month we would build another one, either a bit bigger or a bit better, or we would change something um, to make sure we were always falling forward and, and trying, trying, trying out the next thing. And then it actually only took us two years to go from that two and a half really small um, DIY setup to the one we just did in New York, which was a 20 meter suspended um, uh, spherical concert hall with sort of full la um, uh, light to sound uh, capabilities. Very cool. John Henry, how about you? Thanks very much. Yeah, so my first introduction to spatial audio was, I suppose, a sort of a trial by fire at, during my um, final thesis preparation at University of Edinburgh in 2007. Um, my final thesis composition was um, sort of written in a combination of uh, common lisp music, which is a lisp, if you're not familiar, it's an object, one of the first object-oriented uh, programming languages. And there's a sort of a variant of it that's used for um, mostly for, you know, kind of uh, object oriented composition uh, called common lisp music. So my goal with the project was to create a kind of a spiralized sound around the audience. And so I, uh, in this period, kind of was actually living in the um, sound lab of the music school at University of Edinburgh. Uh, doing 20-hour days, and I had created a kind of a, like a, I think it was like a 9.1 Genelec system that surrounded the audience. And the idea with the composition was to go through the history of musical instruments in the world, starting you know with idiophones like sticks and drums, and then into membranophones and um, you know uh, chordophones, stringed instruments, and kind of go through the history of music as told with those musical instruments involved in the composition, but using uh, Fibonacci series numbers to inform both the compositional structure of that tune, but also um, to try to create a kind of a an impression around the audience of being in the center of a, of a spiralized spatial audio environment. Um, and so that proved to be pretty difficult to do. I, I did manage to, to do it kind of hacking my way through it with... Um, various um, flying panners in Ableton that were sent to each of the each of the channels. Um, when I tried to do it in Lisp, I got this kind of clipping noise um, going from speaker to speaker that was really sort of problematic. It didn't it didn't sound smooth at all. And I think it would have it would have really, you know, been um, really been disruptive for the performance. Um, but I, I did manage to find a way uh, around it with within Ableton. So uh, that was my first real foray into spatial audio, and it was a, it was a pretty deep dive. Um, it was uh, August of 2007, and in Edinburgh, there's you may be familiar as the Fringe Festival that happens during that time. So it's like the city turns into this nonstop party for about a month. So it was it was really tempting to go out and hang out with all my friends and you know be up all night partying. But basically, I, I in order to get this done, I had to do like a month of 20 hour days, and it was it was a steady diet of green tea and tuna fish and ramen um, to, to get that all done. But I did finish it and uh, managed to get, uh, get an award for that composition called the uh, 
Society for the Promotion of New Music's uh, Composer Shortlist Award. And they are now known, I think, as Sound in Music. And it's a, it's a British organization that's sort of um, devoted towards producing new composition, um, kind of more modern um, mo- modern forms of composition, either with traditional music notation or you know computer-based composition structures. So that was that was my first foray, and then um, after that, I sort of pivoted and got into more into live stream productions as a as a kind of just as a day job, and so kind of moved away from it for a little bit. And um, that was yeah. So started doing that around 2008, and then around 2015. I got a job at New World Symphony in um, Miami Beach, and New World Symphony, if you're not familiar, is sort of a—I guess you'd almost call it like a postdoc or, or a, you know, it's a fellowship-based uh, uh, symphony that mainly attracts graduates of music schools, you know, traditional classical musicians, and it's it's almost like a postdoc before people would you know go into a uh, professional orchestral career uh, so not not all of the fellows do but but a lot of people end up in, in orchestras and then uh, you know some work in other areas of the you know mainly in the classical music world but it's a very technology um, focused venue it was built by um, Frank Gehry um, or designed you know by Frank Gehry who's a good friend of Michael Tilson Thomas uh, the uh, former artistic director and the founder of the organization there so uh, New World Symphony did, was was very experimental in terms of just trying out new technologies, and so I was able to um, to you know really experiment with uh, 360 video and ambisonic audio. So I was you know beta testing 360 cameras that were had you know ambisonic mic arrays on board, like the the Aura uh, 4i, uh, the Insta360 Pro, and then we did a, a project with Samsung to test their uh, 360. Uh, professional camera it was a like a 16 lens stereoscopic 360 camera and using you know ambisonic microarrays and then also just using like the zoom um h3 vr it's a little if you're familiar it's a kind of a portable zoom uh, ambisonic recorder and so i've i've found great utility in that little device it's you know 250 dollar you know ambisonic uh, recorder and you you know i kind of take it with me everywhere uh, so i've been using that to to make um field recordings you know spatial field recordings increasingly i've been you know drawn to the the world of um live spatial audio and that's where the sonic sphere you know came in it was really attractive to me because um in uh 2021 i got a grant to do a live spatial audio uh, installation from the miami downtown development authority and that was for this inveri deluxe project uh, which I, i mentioned in my bio the idea with that, I guess, was um, creating music and uh, a, a kind of, I guess, audiovisual environment that it was green, <laughs> to, to put it simply. And but taking, um, you know, the 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 light wave or the the um, you know the frequency spectrum of green light, which is you know around five forty to five eighty terahertz, and then sort of maybe transposing that, if you will, into the audio domain. So uh, like five. You know, around 540 to 580 hertz, and and using that those that range of frequencies as as kind of a base for a a, a kind of modal improvisational um, you know kind of generative music um, composition, and so that that came to be in 2021, um, and I set up sort of like a five channel ambisonic system with four 
QSC powered speakers and then a top channel hanging above the audience. And it was a sort of sort of this green tent that people would sit in and there were projections inside what initially was supposed to be sort of an open environment inside of a storefront on Flagler Street in Miami had to change and become kind of a, a one person at a time installation. And so this 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 spatial audio uh, project had to basically uh, encompass social distancing or, or accommodate for social distancing and, and not having a bunch of people in the room at the time. So that, that made it into this very personalized listening experience. Um, that then led into a sort of an expansion of that project. In 2022, I got the Miami um, uh, Individual Artist Grant to take that to an outdoor venue called um, Center for Subtropical Affairs, and then uh, um, which is a sort of an outdoor tropical plant-based environment. So I set up a, a much larger area with um, uh, another five-channel kind of ambisonic outdoor sound system. So then I got that same grant again in 2023 and was able to actually um, use that to facilitate a performance inside the sonic sphere. Uh, I asked them, you know, I was like, hey, you know, can I, I'm, I'm, I happen to be working on this, uh, this project for uh, assisting Marin with the, with the spatial audio in here. And would it be possible to, you know, roll that into the grant? So that ended up really nicely dovetailing into the, um, the sonic sphere project. And uh, so I recorded that with a 360 camera and the, that the Zoom recorder. And so that is the, uh, yeah. That's the abridged version of my spatial audio uh, experience. Well, that's definitely uh, a lot of um, different projects that you've worked on in that space. And so I guess, yeah, since you, you've been mentioning the sonic sphere, and that's kind of what we're going to talk a lot about today. Yeah, what is the sonic sphere? And again, I think not to be confused with the Madison Square Garden uh, sphere in Vegas that has just opened um, that we covered more recently, the sonic sphere is a different thing. Um, and so, yeah, would uh, both of you mind talking a little bit about what the sonic sphere is? Uh, absolutely. Um, yes, yeah, as, as I mentioned, it's um, it is a project that's really inspired by uh, something that Karl Heinz Stockhausen did in 1970. Um, and his spherical concert hall um, it was very much an experiment in 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 full spherical spatial audio um, and also full spherical spatial light and how the two could be used together. Um, and it's really interesting because a lot of spatial audio has happened since. Um, but weirdly, that that this this was the 1970 World Fair, and at the same World Fair, um, uh, the first uh, smartphone um, was uh, showcased, as was uh, the first IMAX, I believe. And all of those are, are of course, ubiquitous now. But um, that Kugelotorium, so Stockhausen's project, it was beset by problems, but it, it sort of disappeared from history. Um, and um, I think part of Ed's obsession was why that was. I think part of my obsession um, when Ed told me about this project, and, and shamefully I didn't know um, of its existence um, at the time, is um, sort of what lies at the heart of my PhD. So um, as a kid, I think I was 16, you know, my first experiences of club spaces and raves were really interesting and they were kind of um, formative, um, formative because there was something that happened there um, that had to do with sound, light, um, and all the senses and the blurring of boundaries between the senses um, that sort of did something to the experience of the world. It sort of, um, it broke the rules of physics, if only temporarily. Um, and there's another thing that um, is always uh, stuck with me, and I'm not sure if it's very personal, but it's something that people do 
um, relate to when I when I tell them that to me sound and music are deeply architectural and deeply spatial in their own right. They sort of you know they conjure images of ephemeral architectures in my mind. And I think this project to me is really an exploration of first of all that um, sound and music as architectural temporal structures and what's possible there. And the other thing is, and this is where it becomes an audiovisual. I mean, it's very much. Uh, sonically led, but of course it's audiovisual installation. Um, what is possible um, when you blur the boundaries or you tie very closely uh, together uh, a sound and light experience? Um, and is there anything that sparks from that, um, which which sort of goes beyond the sum of its parts? Um, Ed and I, and it's not quite jokingly, we quite often refer to Sonic Sphere as an engine of consciousness, and in some ways it is that it sort of feels some times too pompous a thing to say, but there is something in that. It's, it's sort of, what 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 does it actually, and my, my thesis was called Altered States, and it was really looking at that, how the senses, the blurring of boundaries between the senses and creating um, experiences that are deeply multi-sensory, how they um, have an after effect, right? And that's an after effect of the mind. That's an after effect of how you view the world. And it's an after effect of consciousness. Uh, so in some ways, it's also that it's very much a laboratory of what we might do um, in a sensory environment that might have an after effect. Um, uh, so yeah, it's, it's those two things. It's, it's sound as architecture uh, and it's a laboratory of the senses. That, that, that's a cool way to think about um, this, the sonic sphere. I guess, uh, John, Henry, do you have something to add to kind of expand on what Sonic Sphere is? Sure. Yeah. Uh, maybe I can, you know, speak a little more about the technical details of it. That you know, being a gearhead, I guess I was sort of drawn to. Um, I mean, I, philosophically and sort of, you know, uh, all the things Marin talking about, of course, are, are really interesting to me as well. But um, when I heard about oh, there's this sonic sphere and it's got all these different speakers and, you know, in a kind of, um, I believe they were talking about putting them in a sort of a Fibonacci array or the pattern inside of the sphere uh, and that, you know, having experience with that with my own um, uh, composition from from Edinburgh, that was sort of instantly piqued my attention. Um, so, yeah, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, Marin, I, and there's, there's maybe three, 32 speakers in the test sphere and then in the in the larger one there's uh, 128 124 so 124.12 you know um, and i think they're jbl control 30 speakers um uh, all of these are sort of emanating from um a, a central nest a, a control center with a mixing board and um i think you guys use dante right for the for the network component of it and um so um, technically, it was a really you know complex and, and and fascinating you know prospect for me to sort of get my mind around like how do you move sound around in in something like that and um, so this was also a great introduction to me for using Spat uh, and Reaper um, which uh, I learned a great deal about from just watching Marin and then kind of diving in on this project and and you know how to how to move sound around in an object-based audio environment in a way that's not going to be jarring to people um, also conveys that movement. And um, so for me, it was, it was really fascinating um, with my previous experience, you know, working in a much more limited um, capacity with like only really like a five channel, you know, four, you know, a quad plus a vertical channel in, in, in the grants that I, you know, the grant projects that I did to this completely immersive, you know, hundred plus 
uh, channel you know environment and um, the test sphere where everything was kind of being developed was was impressive on its own and then but seeing this come together inside the shed I mean this, the scale of this is is really hard to convey till you're there and you just seeing this massive hundred thousand pound you know s- steel and cable and mesh and led structure uh come together it was sort of like a, a massive multi-sided you know like uh role-playing dice or something i mean it, i'm not sure how many facets there are but it, you know it's a series of triangles that come together to essentially form a, a sphere and then and then the, you know the audience comes and sits inside of this and sort of uh, sort of engulfs themselves in the in the sound and the light um which were the light to some degree is, is audio reactive. Um, so all kinds of, yeah, all kinds of really interesting challenges about how to, you know, how to move the sound around, how to take a stereo file and then, you know, rip it into six different, you know, um, different tracks that can also be moved around um, somewhat independently of each other. Learned a lot about that. Um, I guess that's my impression of it is just coming in kind of fairly very late in this stage and as a volunteer and just saying hey how can i help with this and and you know initially came when i was just helping you know cut strips of tape to put on these leds to you know to fabricate stuff and then i think fairly quickly they found out like oh this guy's actually got some significant experience doing spatial audio so then Marin kind of drafted me into uh, being sort of an assistant audio engineer because there's quite a workload with just spatializing all of the tracks that were being submitted to so that was my yeah that was my dive into the deep end of of uh, the sonic sphere so just to kind of craft a, a little better kind of image for our audience um so the sonic sphere um is does it move is it something that is like stationary or are there different sites that it gets set up in um and where you know kind of where is it based out of um and Maybe you can kind of just give a little bit more kind of concrete uh, kind of description of what, what exactly it, it looks like, what it feels like. Um, yes, yeah, so effectively, it's um, a geodesic sphere. Um, uh, by now, um, we got a structure engineer, and he sort of um, he. It's not. It's 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 um, technically it's not a geodesic, but it's based on a geodesic sphere, and that's also how we started. We started with really cheap geodesic dome kits that we would build, and then build another, and then just you know um, bottom half on top half, and that were our first very DIY. Uh, Sonic Sphere is still called Google Auditorium then. In fact, we still refer to them as KA, and then we give them a number. Uh, so our first one was called KA2 because the first one was really built by Stockhausen. Um, and effectively, uh, the, uh, so the first one was small, two and a half meters, um, uh, and they had like powered monitor speakers. Um, we used a different um, number of speakers for different iterations, but they would sit on the node. Um, and... We quickly found out that two and a half meters was first of all way too claustrophobic, and also it's actually it's really quite hard to have your head in the middle of that sphere anyway, which is quite important. This is still sound only, so that's um, uh, we I think we used like thirty or maybe thirty two uh, speakers for the early ones, and then we moved up a scale to seven meters, and then actually there's one permanent um, one um, in a place just outside of Paris called Chateau du Fay, uh, and that's a seven meter sphere. Um, that's got 30 speakers and it has a net at the center and it holds about um, 30 to 40 people um, that can have um, a very deep sort of listening experience and you're right at the center of that sphere. And we did find that seven meters was comfortable. It it was sort of um, a good intimate size where you could really work with spatial audio 
uh, and it would hold more than only a few people, which I think is important because it's at the heart of our project has always been that this should be a collective um, sensory or listening experience. Um, so that's a permanent one. Um, then the first uh, larger one we did was 13, uh, 12 and a half meters actually at Burning Man uh, 2022. Um, and that um, was an, an immense success. Um, it was very much the same idea, but it was much bigger, 12 and a half meters. We had a massive net in the middle and it could hold way more people. Um, I think it was up to 80 or 120. Um, and that was a really, um, 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 that really was such a success that we uh, then got lots of um, opportunities to do it elsewhere. And the next one we did was um, a Burning Man spin-off, if you like, a local regional burn called Love Burn Miami. Um, and we used the same uh, structure and the same speaker system. Um, I think we had 52 speakers there. Um, and we did some upgrades to the net. I think what we really found is that, you know, we also wanted to be able to use this space um, as a club space, as a dance floor, and not just as a listening space. So we had uh, upgraded the net. So there was um, a sort of combination of hard flooring and netted surfaces, um, which was really um, um, a really good addition to what we had uh, at Burning Man. Uh, and the other thing is that we hadn't really done an awful lot of live stuff. Um, we did for the DIY versions, uh, or I did, I did um, a version of it at the Mu um, Museum for Modern Art in Oxford which was a live performance, but that was still the two and a half meter sphere and Burning Man was mostly pre-recorded. But in Miami, we really opened it out to uh, live performers um, and that was really great. This was the first time we started using SPED Revolution, uh, which really allows for the integration to happen quite easily. Um, now that, of course, is another short-lived festival, it was only a week, so that came down uh, and that was in February this year. And then um, in between February and, um, and June, we uh, worked on the New York uh, one which was a much larger and much more ambitious project, 20 meter diameter. Um, it had LEDs. Actually, I should have mentioned that from Burning Man, we had a full um, LED lighting rig on each node, um, which is where the speakers were for Burning Man and Love Burn, uh, and they could talk to each other. So whatever was was happening with uh, sound spatially could be um, could be done uh, visually as well. Um, and for New York, we um, really upped our game. Um, um, so the LEDs were sort of upgraded. There were much more nodes because it was a much bigger sphere. Um, and we had some proper sort of touch designer, um, sound to light um, um, action going on. We had a whole team of amazing light designers um, that worked on specific lighting um, uh, experiences for uh, different shows. Um, and we went from 52 speakers to indeed 124 with eight, um, uh, 12 subwoofers, or actually six pairs of two. Um, so it was a much bigger sphere. And, and the other addition was that it was suspended from the ceiling. This was our first indoor sphere, uh, and it was at the Shed in New York. And the Shed is built to incredible uh, high specs, so it can take a lot of weight. So we were able to suspend this sphere uh, from their ceiling. And then we had two massive staircases going up into the sphere where people would walk into what wasn't a net, but really a staggered seating plan, a bit like an operating theater, which was fully preferable to both sound and light. Um, so these were like massive upgrades uh, and, and it was our biggest project yet. But that's sort of how you might want to visualize this. It's a geodesic based structure that um, is either set off the ground um, from tripods, which is what we did at Burning Man and Love Burn, or in New York was suspending from the ceiling. Um, and then you uh, lie or sit um, in the center of that sphere um, and you are surrounded by sound and light.
Thank you. I think that that gives a really good kind of image of what Sonic Sphere is and kind of where it's at currently and just all the different evolutions that it's gone through. Um, we're going to move into our hot topic now, which is crafting audio for Sonic Spheres. To do that, let's kind of dive into um, your recent collaboration, um, you know, with the, the Sonic Sphere that you all did in New York and, you know, kind of what what was the um, message of the project um, and how did, how was it working together and collaborating on that? Sure. Um, I'll start and then I'll, I'll hand off to John because he had um, 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 a massive hand in a lot of this. Um, the New York one was the first um, of our commercial um, ones. So this was sort of a ticketed um, uh, project. And we, um, in collaboration with the artistic director of The Shed in New York, the art institution called The Shed, um, Alex Putz, we had um, contacted a lot of um, artists um, and asked them whether they would be interested in um, in collaborating um, in having a specialized version of um, some of their work. So we had um, the first album of the XX, um, and they kindly sent us the stems of that album. So we were able to use like the the source material to. Um, I, I wouldn't really want to call it a remix, but sort of to spatially upmix um, that album um, specifically for Sonic Sphere. So not as a Dolby Atmos or 5.1 uh, mix, but a mix that was um, specifically for this fully 3D uh, Sonic environment. Um, then we asked Carl Craig, a famous techno DJ, um, and yeah, AG, a, a sort of really up and coming future pop um, artist, if they wanted to devise for us a playlist of their primary influences and in, in um, for Carl Craig that was also the history of electronic music um, and he came up with some really avant-garde choices uh, and that was interesting um, because a lot of um, those works especially Carl Craig were um, really um, old works from the 70s um, or even 60s for which no stems existed and this is where we had to use AI and different stem extraction software to try and um, extract from those sometimes even mono or stereo files at best, um, something that could be spatialized. Um, Yaeji's um, playlist was much more sort of um, her influence from from now, from the, the 21st century. So all of that was actually quite easy to get stamps for. Uh, and it's also really interesting to sort of understand that there's uh, the layers that people use in, today in, in, in productions of electronic music, because about mostly electronic music, is so multi-layered, right? There's some projects there that have up to 72 stems, um, which is almost too much. It means it's actually really great because it means you can get really granular with how you spatialize and where what goes and what moves and what sort of is inert in space. But um, um, it also sort of, that I, I think through my experience of working with all of those stems, I did find that there's a sweet spot in terms of the number of stems that is, is a pleasure to work with. If it's any more than 25, it becomes really hard because you don't really know where to begin and it's almost too granular. Um, but that's how those worked. Um, we had a lot of um, live performances as well um, and we invited artists there. We had a unique, um, who is a really... Um, quite famous by now, um, Jersey Club uh, DJ. Uh, and she was really taken in by the idea of, of doing a DJ set that was sort of a spatial DJ set. Um, and we were lucky because she lives in, in Jersey because she uh, so she could come over to the warehouse and sort of experiment with our setup. And that was really interesting to see what's possible live. And of course, some other artists really didn't have that time and they would just be on tour and only sort of flew in the day before. So it was a bit hard of them to and really get in deep with them um, uh, to spatialize um, their live performances. 
but nonetheless, I think there's a lot um, really interesting possible uh, with live, um, as long as you have an artist who can give you the time to sort of um, work with you on what's possible and, and how, how to implement things best. Uh, and then a third aspect of, of this particular New York one um, was um, what we call the lab sessions. And that was really opening it out to local artists. Um, this was mostly live. Some of it was pre-recorded. People that had like really interesting work that they would love to upmix for Sonic Sphere. But a lot of that was live. And it was really, um, I think that was always, to me, that was almost the highlight of, of the entire run because so many really interesting things that I never heard um, were played at Sonic Sphere. And so many interesting ideas of what might be possible and where to take it next sort of bubbled up from those lab sessions. Um, but those were the three uh, primary uh, tracks. So we had the pre-recorded um, albums and playlists, then we had the live sessions, and then we had the lab sessions as well. John Henry, would you like to... Um talk about your part of the collaboration yeah sure so one of the first things i worked on was carl craig's dj set um and taking basically a collection of you know stereo wave files and then bringing them into i think we use ripx and that is a software that essentially strip out different frequency components of a of a of a wave file into you know into other wave files based off of a you know, um, separating out the different, uh, you know, the different frequencies in that. So you will get, you know, sort of a bass drum or a bass track, a, a guitar track, a guitar vocals, or at least what it thinks those are, you know, it's sort of, and, and it'll spit those out and you can, you know, have larger or smaller number of, of, of separate tracks. Um, but that became really useful in terms of having, uh, a sufficient number of stems to set, you know, to actually spatialize as it were in inside that space you know if you're just taking you know kind of a stereo wave file and moving it around to different um speakers that could get maybe a little bit tiresome or, or maybe not that interesting from a actual movement perspective and so having the ability to separate out the different um you know the, the different frequencies of, of each track and then move those around independently became pretty clear that was like the way to go as, as the template for how to create movement inside the space. Uh, so that's what I started at in immediately. And, and, you know, Carl Craig's, uh, DJ said, if you want to call it, that went really deep into, you know, the history of electronic music as Marin was mentioning. And, you know, I think he had a Carl Heinz Stockhausen track. He had some, uh, um, Jay Dilla, he had um, just a really wide spectrum of electronic music, everything from very heavy avant-garde serialist composition stuff to kind of more modern, um, you know, hip-hop productions, and then also some some you know kind of classic Detroit techno artists, but much more on the experimental side. I think he had a Juan Atkins track, and I'm forgetting all the exact songs that he used, but. It was just a. It went really hard and really deep, and it was it was kind of cool to see you know that him embracing you know just uh, really deep cuts within um, the entire history of, of electronic music and and to some degree techno and and and, and modern um, hip hop too. So that was just a, a you know a sort of a, a walk through musical history unto itself. But then learning you know how to uh, how best to take the different you know elements of those songs and then 
assign them to different, you know, like within SPAT, assign them to different panners, basically, that would pan them either on a, you know, horizontal uh, basis or, or using elevation. And then there's also, I guess, you know, there's, there's sort of a, a width component or, um, you know, how, how wide are you, you know, sending these signals? And, and I think you can even send them sort of to some degree, theoretically, like outside the sphere too, right, Marin? Like it's, you, you know, within SPAT, you could almost locate something outside of the actual listening environment as well in, in a, in a, you know, or at least the approximation of that. So, um, that was Carl Craig. That was the first thing I started working on. That was kind of, you know, Marin sent me a Google drive link with a bunch of tracks. It's like, here, you know, try to, try to rip these and then, uh, bring them into Reaper. Uh, so spat basically pulled the audio in from Reaper. There was a multi-track Reaper session. And then, um, that was, uh, you know, uh, you, we had to create, um, like a multi-channel internal audio bus using the black hole um, uh, virtual sound card. So, and then actually creating like an aggregate device within Mac with a black hole and then a headphone output so that you could monitor these things binaurally while you're working on them. Because we couldn't always work inside the um, inside the actual test sphere to to sort of um, work on the imaging of these these tracks. So to some degree, a lot of this was, well, to a large degree, this uh, this project was working on headphones and using a kind of a binaural renderer in um, in SPAT to approximate um, what you know what it would sound like in the real real world context. Um, but then taking that into the test sphere and then subsequently into the real sonic sphere, each of those were then different, you know, and you had to make tweaks and adjustments to the you know the SPAT files based off of the real world acoustics of each of those structures, you know, doing it in a, in a virtual sense in headphones was not, it got you part of the way there, but it couldn't fully, you know, uh, get a, a good mix for those, those real world environments. So that was a, that was a challenge and, and part of the fun too. So were you mostly um, outputting in ambisonics or I know SPAT gives you a lot of options for different algorithms to use did you do anything to kind of combine those algorithms and creating like different buses with those algorithms and combining them together? It's interesting, actually. Mostly we used VWAP, um, but um, the lab sessions, um, uh, Amanda Lind was one of our um, uh, lab session collaborators, and she uh, did a really interesting project that did indeed take in some ambisonic uh, buses uh, and combine them um, with live VWAP. Um, which um which worked really well um but yeah most of our stuff was was um was done in VBAP um and it was the only sort of um uh, instance where we combined the two um and other than that that worked seamlessly um um uh, yeah I sort of feel there's a lot more um to be explored there not least because of course Spat Revolution quite recently released this what they call relaxed um wave field synthesis um which I would love to play around with but um. Um, I think the pressures of that this particular project sort of didn't really allow us to to dive too deep into that. Um, but yeah. Well, I think that the sphere shape can really lend itself to VBAP well. The triangulation, I think, works really well when you have kind of a sphere of speakers set up in that way. And then I also CPU power, you're probably going to be saving a bit. Um, although I know a lot of the computers nowadays getting really powerful. <laughs> 
Yeah, actually, interestingly, we had, because uh, uh, John's right, we, um, at least for the warehouse sort of test sphere, we used it all on a single machine. But um, um, the actual production um, in the shed was done over two machines. Um, and we were worried that that was going to be an issue uh, processor-wise, but actually that, that it, it, it barely scratched the CPUs. Um, it was actually totally fine, which was um, interesting to find out. What computers were you using? Uh, these were Mac M2s, um, fully sort of, you know, the, the, the Mac, um, what is it, um, Pro, Ultra, whatever. So, um, yeah, the, the best Macs we could get at that time, um, but, but laptop. Laptop max. Yeah. I'd like to get a little deeper, kind of talking about you know what it is like to craft audio, kind of for these spaces, um, and what you know what you found, kind of from an artistic and a technical perspective, about working in a sonic sphere, and why um, the projects that you're bringing to the space feel. Uh, like they they are suited well for that, or kind of how I mean again you're you're kind of doing a combination it sounds like of taking uh, stereo files um, and trying to get stems and kind of mix them, and then also having artists come in and kind of work with the space and so just kind of commenting on if you found like one approach to be get a better result than the other, or if you were um, happy with kind of how everything sounded. Yeah, I think I mean there's so many things we learned and so many things we we know we need to experiment with more. Um let me just take an example, um the XX. Um it's such a minimalist album in, in many respects. Um and um it just I think our experience was that it was actually quite hard to do it justice um, as a spatial upmix um, um, without sort of compromising the the impact that it has um, um, with its original mix. And we were lucky we had actually the original sound engineer uh, there to um, give us input. Um, but there was also um, a level of, it's almost like these two are sometimes nearly incompatible right so if you want to if you don't want to compromise what was there um in the stereo mix then you end up with a spatial mix that isn't particularly adventurous um and i think that's where we ended up with the xx um and initially with um and i forgot to mention this we had steve reich's music for 80 musicians um and they also gave us the digitized stems from uh, 90s um a tape recording which was amazing although they <clears throat> they never sorted the takes that actually went on the album, so we had to sort of try and find those ourselves, which was interesting and also quite impossible. Um, but that that um, work particularly, um, I found was so interesting because, of course, a lot of these parts and there's you know there's eighteen of them. They are composed to sit neatly on top of each other and make this sort of one sound, and that's and that's and you know the phasing happens between uh, those when sort of those stacks slightly go off. Uh, to one side or the other and that really works well as a stereo mix if you do it spatially all of a sudden actually where you are in space will dictate whether you hear a stack or something that's slightly out of phase which is really interesting but it does mean that um, the experience will be very different for different audience members and it also means that that is absolutely i wouldn't call it a compromise but it's a difference uh, from the original recording um and it's it's interesting because Steve Reich came to one of um, the performances and listened to it. And um, one of his criticisms was indeed that it wasn't like um, um, how he intended it, but that is almost impossible. I think that experience really taught us that what is maybe um, quite important um, for spatial audio um, 
to have uh, a future, and I think it is the future, is that actually things are commissioned uh, spatially, um, or that artists are really aware of the fact that um, a spatial mix is never the same as a stereo mix, and it becomes a different beast altogether, right? Because where you are positioned in space will now determine your experience of that particular piece of music or sound art. Um, um, and I think it works. Uh, it, it worked for us. The sort of um, uh, it was the most exciting when things were built from the ground up. Uh, so they were commissioned for Sonic Sphere, and people would just think about the instrument. Um, and I do think of it as an instrument, and what was possible spatially, and sort of work to those specs rather than having something that's already there that you then up mix in space. And it's absolutely not like I think of that as a dead end, but it's it's very different. And I think the most exciting. Uh, experience to me were the ones where actually things were built from the ground up with the system in mind. John Henry, did you have anything you wanted to add on that? Yeah, um, I, I will say, uh, although I didn't, I didn't hear about Steve Reich's criticism. Um, I found that particular piece to probably be the most compelling um, uh, performance and listening experience that I had as a listener. You know, being in there, uh, that I felt was a, I felt it was a really masterful reinterpretation of that work, and and it was to me definitely the most, uh, you know, sort of trance-inducing and really, you know, kind of uh, evocative experience that I had while I was in there. So, um, you know, props to Marin on that. Um, I sure, I'm sure, you know, uh, there's there's always room for, you know, improvements and everything, but I really love that particular uh, experience. Um, uh, yeah, so one of the challenges is really not, is conveying movement and getting, you know, you're in this, spherical space and you're 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 wanting to be having a spatial a, a sense of the movement of the sound within that 3d space but um i think too much movement too quickly can be jarring and so one of the pushbacks i was getting from marin was just like okay you know because i tend to be pretty you know i i, I you know uh, I, I wanted to sort of really explore the outer limits of moving the sound around quickly and 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 so in some of my initial experiments, you know, the, the, the feedback I would get from Aaron is like, that's cool, but it's, you know, it's maybe going to be a little jarring, you know, for the audience for that to move around. Because one of the things I was doing was using um, an iPad because there's a uh, there's an OSC plugin or, or app that you can use uh, with an iPad to sort of use like basically, you know, haptic or, or, or tactile, um, you know, panning with it's it's 2d obviously because it's it's a flat screen but you can kind of approximate and you can um you know within that circle you can move that sound around physically um with your finger as you're listening to it so for me it was important to try to get some of the rhythm components of the song and then move those around in a rhythmic fashion and so the the you can do it with um you know with envelopes and and um you know, uh, LFO is basically via Reaper, but I really, one of the things I wanted to try to do was, was to create a, a, a sense of that movement corresponding to the actual rhythmic components and, 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 uh, compositional structures of those pieces. And so, so I would take the, the, the quickest, easiest way for me to do that was using this OSC, um, plugin that, that, uh, I believe, I believe Flux, uh, immersive uh, is makes for for spat and using my own kind of yeah experience as a drummer i'm a drummer as well and so it just 
being able to play with it in real time in a, in a physical way uh, rather than programming it in. Um, it it, it kind of later, I, I, I began to see, you know, the wisdom that, that Marin was, was trying to impart to me about, about keeping it maybe a little more subtle. And, and the way to do that is with using envelopes and, and, and LFOs because it, it, it moves it around in a more subtle way. And, and it, did, it did turn out that, you know, some of those sort of like jerky movements with my finger on an iPad, you know, in the headphones might have sounded really cool. And then you took it into, you know, the, uh, the, the test sphere and then the larger sphere and it could get really jerky and, and, and sort of, you know, maybe, uh, overwhelm, overpower the music. And in some cases remove certain elements because while that movement is happening, you know, you'll, you'll hear a bass drum kick that'll disappear for a second because it's in between two speakers or something based off of that movement. And so, um, I think it's, I think this is a, you know, it's an art form and a, and a science that is developing right now as we speak. And so to some degree, there were no hard, fast rules about, about what we, you know, we're going to do with it. And, and that's exciting. But I think the general rule of thumb is, is convey the movement, but don't overwhelm people with it. And, um, so, um, that was, that was kind of the operating principle I was using in, in all the different, um, uh, you know, spatial mixes that I was, that I was creating in Reaper. Um, and yeah, so that was a bit about that, about how to, how to craft spatial sound for a, for an audience. So kind of following, um, that, that point, um, what are some kind of tips and tricks or some of the things that you found just worked really well when you were, um, spatializing content for the sonic sphere? Yeah, it's, it's it's really interesting, and it's sort of a handbook that um, I made a start with, and really feel like this is sort of an open-ended book. Whether there won't be an end to it, but it, it's 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 so interesting to try and write down these um, findings of what does work and what doesn't. Um, um, and well, there's a few things, and actually a few things we didn't quite get to try properly, but a few things that we have a, a sense that sort of um, there's this. Uh, firstly, there's of course, and this is. Uh, relatively common knowledge that we just hear better spatially uh, planarly um, than we do vertically and it's especially true for sounds that are underneath you um, and actually it almost means that you have to hyper amplify those sounds and we didn't quite but it could almost be a gain staging thing uh, and that gain staging I think would also really um, worked well and we didn't so everything was gain staged the same throughout the sphere but I think actually having this southern hemisphere if you like um, to a different gain stage than the upper hemisphere makes sense. Another um, um, sort of tuning um, act that we could have done but just didn't have time for is, is use gain staging that actually is staggered. So gains go up as speakers um, move up um, just to sort of equalize that, um, that listening space. Um, then the other thing is indeed that it's subtle movement um, um, is is always good and things that are too jumpy become tiresome. Um, it's almost like a drummer playing like a fill every four bars. You know, you, you get tired of this. It, it sort of works best if these things are used sparsely and then they have the, the greatest impact. Actually, the, the lack of movement also can be really powerful. And uh, one of our lab sessions, we had this, um, and he's actually, he's, he's quite a famous Hollywood composer, Rolf Kent. Um, and he's been composing for the sphere pretty much from the from the beginning, um, and he never uses movement. He only ever places um, instruments or sounds in space, but they act um, 
between each other and they sort of create movement like that, right? So rather than the object moving, it's it's the, it's the movement that happens between sort of these opposing voices. Um, and he's come up with this really interesting system where he uses a clock face um, and then also uh, a compass um, uh, to, to sort of put something up or down. It's a really easy way, first of all, um, for a composer to uh, communicate to me in um, what he or she wants. Um, so it becomes really easy um, to... Um, work um, with stems that are given to you like that. But it's also a really nice way of imagining what something might sound like without having access to a sonic sphere. Because um, that's the other thing we found, that actually binaural monitoring never quite translates to an actual sphere. And then a sphere that was only four and a half meters, which was our warehouse test sphere, doesn't really translate properly to the 20 meter one. There's always tweaking to be done. Um, and it's actually, interestingly, his system, which is done entirely sort of in the mind, um, translated really well. Um, so it's 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 very interesting how you can actually mentally imagine sounds in space, um, and that almost works better than trying to do it physically by binaural monitoring or by having a mini sphere. Um, so yeah, those were some of the the things we found. It's such a new space, and so the rules haven't been written yet but uh you know as more and more time goes by and more and more of these systems are built and more and more people have you know experiences with them it's always interesting to hear what works and what doesn't work and what sounds good and what doesn't sound good and again we're still in a very experimental place um with all of that just a note on on the two spheres um and of course we want to differentiate this uh, very very definitely from the MSG sphere, but there is a little bit of crossover in that while I was working on the Sonic Sphere, I was uh, talking with some of the folks at Holoplot um, who work on the MSG Sphere, and we did actually uh, get a submission for a piece from Carlos Mosquera, who works at Holoplot, um, and he, speaking of kind of more fixed position spatial audio, he uh, created a really in-depth um, spat file with, you know, maybe even a hundred different sound sources, each of which were, um, you know, placed in a different um, in a different zone inside the sphere. And and I think that was probably one of the most, you know, advanced submissions that we got. And really, unfortunately, it just it didn't get to get played because the scheduling was so tight with um, the shed, and 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 it wasn't initially part of the original programming but i you know i'd certainly hope to be able to get his composition to get played at, at a later date if, if if there's another uh showing uh, or another you know residency for the shed because i think there's there's both the the appeal of sound that moves around and and is is giving you that sense of space but also having a composition with fixed piece you know fixed objects in in that space um might also be a uh you know, a really compelling way to, you know, to create spatial audio content. And, and I'm really excited to hear what that sounds like. Um, anyway, a little bit of a tie-in with uh, the two spheres. Thanks so much for talking about kind of crafting audio for the sonic sphere. Um, I think we're going to move into wrapping up now. And so uh, my first question and our um, kind of end questions uh, are what are your thoughts on the future of spatial audio and performance in live sound industry um, that's currently happening, and kind of where do you see the future going? It's it's really interesting. I think that it feels to me like this is, um, uh, and it's happened before, right? It's not spatial audio is is not new, but it feels to me like it has a momentum now 
And that's actually, I don't know if that's because of um, the MST sphere. I think that's more sort of um, uh, a result of what's been happening. Um, but it's it's such it's got such momentum behind it that there's no stopping it. Um, and it's very much an unwritten space yet. Um, um, but yeah, just to go back, I think I think the future to me is really where interfaces, where you know the way um, it's interfaces, so people uh, artists can um, use spatial audio in a very intuitive and accessible way, and that accessibility is not just in the live setting; it's actually also um, um, how it's used in the studio, right? It's 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 how accessible it is when you're creating music, and I think binaural uh, listening and headphone tracking are really. Um, exciting technologies that um, make it very accessible to a lot of people because, of course, you know, um, most of us just don't have the money or the space for a proper spatial audio rig. Um, so I think the future will probably be in, in, in fine tunings of those systems where it becomes easy to do it from the comfort of your bedroom um, with a result that actually translates really well to different spatial audio systems. And the second is, is the interfaces that people can use uh, on stage live to to recreate um, their music um, as a live performance. Yeah, I I, I definitely uh, amplify what Marin's saying and and add that I I do think it's the future of live performance. Maybe full stop. Um, maybe it's not going to be fully replacing you know um, stereo line arrays, but I certainly for one would love to see you know a, a much uh, wider range of venues start to embrace some degree of spatial audio, even if it's just a quad system. Um, because I, I, I think having seen, you know, hundreds or probably thousands of shows at this point, I, I, I think, you know, having the music, you know, blasted in your face from, you know, these huge sort of uh, speaker arrays, oftentimes at, you know, volumes that are just uncomfortably loud, um, I guess as I get older, I, I you know I want to protect my hearing, but I also want a more enveloping environment. And I, I I just you know we exist in an immersive sonic environment naturally. Anytime we walk outside and we're we're getting you know we're getting audio inputs from 360 degrees around us all the time. And so I think to a certain degree, and it it it, it more. You know, sort of accurately reflects how we we naturally exist in the world. Uh, you know, the the idea of a, of a spatial audio venue. Um, I I also think that uh, based off of my you know sort of casual observations at the last two NAB shows and the just went to the Audio Engineering Society show in New York uh, last week, it is everywhere. Uh, it is you know Meyer is doing a whole new spatial audio software program. Uh, Sennheiser, pretty much everybody, uh, both in the hardware and software space, seem to be really moving towards this uh, this idea of uh, immersive or, or spatial audio. And and you know to the to the point where it's it's I think we're going to need to sort of settle on what you know a commonly accepted definition of of those two terms is because you know obviously they're they're quite the buzzwords right now but um not only within hardware but yeah but within software space i mean even zoom for example this software that we are using now is incorporating dolby atmos into uh you know into uh the meeting rooms technology so you know all of the major uh, conferencing platforms i think to some degree are going to be starting to incorporate uh, spatial audio to you know if anything just give 
the meeting participants a, a better sense of an acoustic space, a virtual acoustic space. Um, you know, the, the, the work that Flux Immersive has done, you know, porting the your cam spatial audio tools is, is really, I think, groundbreaking. And, and I think, you know, finally these things are starting to gain some degree of, 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 you know, mass market adoption. And I think it's, 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 it's about time. And, um, you know, the work that, that, uh, people like Marin are doing and, and, you know, uh, the, the people in the MSG sphere are doing, which is, you know, vastly more complicated with, uh, you know, the holoplot, you know, beam forming tech and the, the, uh, wave field synthesis, um, is, is really exciting. Um, I've, I've been, keeping abreast of it as much as I can, but, you know, there's new developments every day, but in general, I do feel like this is the, the future of live sound and of, you know, to some degree, uh, recorded sound as well. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm all in. What is the best way to find out more about um, yourselves and the work you do in the Sonic Sphere? Um, yeah, the easiest way would be to go to sonic-sphere.com um, and um, there you can read about all our past iterations um, from the very first to the most current. Um, and uh, you can see all the artists we've collaborated with. Um, and this is um, very much on my to-do list, but there will also be um, a, um, a page with uh, downloads or videos of um, you know all, all of the stuff we do. None of it is a secret, actually. Um, even though we're using Spectre Revolution now, we um, we tended to use open source uh, softwares, um, and they are as usable as as Spectre Revolution uh, in many respects. Um, and there will be downloads of the work we've um, uh, upmixed, um, where the artist uh, allows for it. Um, so there'll be a place there where you can actually find out. Um, first of all, how it works. Secondly, how to sort of start creating your own, um, because it can actually done on on a shoestring, because that's definitely how we started. Um, and there's like instructions of of um, how to best go about um, recreating um, those sonic spheres that we did, at least at a smaller scale. So yeah, sonic-sphere.com is the place where you find out about all the past iterations, uh, all our collaborations, and and what's happening next, and and how to make one yourself. Awesome. Uh, I don't know, John Henry. Do you have um, any links you want to add? Sure. Yeah. Uh, just my my name dot com, johnhenrydale dot com, is uh, my website, uh, which is in dire need of an update. Um, but it does have a link to some of my immersive projects there. Um, then my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Henry Dale, has uh, some documentation uh, in the form of a three hundred and sixty ambisonic uh, recorded audio video um, of both the grant projects that I did prior to Sonic Sphere and then also of my own performance inside of Sonic Sphere uh, that I did. I, I've, I've put that up on my YouTube channel. So if you want to get uh, put on your, you know, your VR headset and really get inside of it, you can. I've got a, a, a video there and I'm going to be putting up some other um, uh, 360 videos I took of, of some of the other artists in inside the sphere as well um, shortly. So, uh, yeah, youtube.com slash John Henry Dale and then John Henry Dale.com for my own stuff. And then, um, I have an Instagram as well that has some documentation of this stuff as well. If, if people care to check that out. Yeah. That's where I'd point people. Okay. So we like to end these podcasts by asking, um, what piece of advice could you give that helped you in your career? Um, I'm not sure if it's it's advice as much as it is just something I found and 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 actually interestingly when I was studying fine art my tutor in in my first year he said that 
you know, whatever you do in foundation, and there's actually sort of, I did my foundation in, in Holland, this one in England. Anyway, whatever you do in your foundation is basically what you will be doing the rest of your life. And that's only true to the extent that I found that even though my background is really convoluted and varied, actually there's a red thread that runs through all of it. Um, and that's always been the same. Um, so there's a sort of stubbornness to um, um, something that interests you and whatever you do, even though it might feel only tenuously connected, actually really sort of always comes back to it. And to me, it's that really that first experience I had in clubs, you know, where uh, it seemed like um, the laws of physics could be suspended by um, by creative sort of uh, exposures to uh, multi-sensory environments. And everything I've been doing since, even though I might not know it, has actually always been trying to find that moment again through my work. Uh, my advice would be to tell people that in every project I've ever encountered, everything takes longer than you think it will. <laughs> and to really carve out the time, as much possible time as you can, to prepare in advance, to test in advance. Um, just, you know, sometimes you only get one chance to make an impression for people. And um, the amount of preparation that you do uh, will be evident to the, the to whoever is, is is watching or listening to your work, and um, it's it's just directly proportional to the success of any project. So really, try to take as much time as you can to prepare uh, in whatever fashion that is, studying up or you know, um, yeah, you know, testing new softwares or or just uh, listening to you know your mixes on a variety of you know different playback systems, whatever it is, just know that to get something good, it's always going to take longer than you think it will. Um, that doesn't mean that great things can't happen in a short amount of time and that there's not room for hazard and for, you know, good chance to kind of come and make things, you know, amazing. But uh, my experience is those things tend to happen when you're well prepared and take the time. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today. Um, really enjoyed having the two of you on. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks very much to you and, and Oliver Cadell. This is a, one of my favorite and really one of the only podcasts I listen to, to be honest. Um, I, I'm, I'm not a huge podcast aficionado, but the one that I regularly go back to is Immersive Audio Podcast. So it's a real honor and pleasure. So thank you very much for your work you guys do. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to show your support, please consider becoming a Patreon. Not only are you supporting us, but you will also get special access to bonus content and much more. Find out more on our official Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash Immersive Audio Podcast. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast, hosted by Oliver Cadell and Monica Bowles. This episode was produced by Oliver Cadell and Emma Reese and included music by Rhythm Scott, Got an idea for an episode or want to comment on something we've discussed recently? Drop us an email at podcast at 1618digital.com or find us on Twitter at iAudioPodcast. If you've enjoyed our show, head to our page on iTunes and leave us a review and rating. It really helps us out. Visit immersiveaudiopodcast.com to access show notes and other episodes and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.
Looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.